On February 8th, 2018, my best friend Riley Smith saw her first dead body. I dragged her to the Del Pueblo Funeral Home in Houston, Texas to conduct an interview with the resident mortician Isaiah Vega. It might sound weird, but I've been interested in death recently and maybe that's because my grandma is about to die. She has had Alzheimer's disease for nearly 20 years now, which is totally unheard of. But she broke her femur this Christmas and things have gone downhill ever since. I wanted to find a way to prepare for her death and I decided a funeral parlor might be the best place to start. So there we were, in a funeral parlor. The sounds of Enya or some other weird waiting room music hummed in the background. My best friend wasn't paying attention to anything really, and then she saw it. My name is Riley Smith. I am here as Caitlin's friend and backup and general assistant, and I've never seen a dead person before, and they rolled one in. Caitlin didn't even notice, and I just let her know, and I'm stuck between wanting to make awful, awful jokes and be really solemn, and I can't figure out what the right answer is, and I also can't stop looking now. We might be surrounded by corpses. I didn't expect any different. <laughs> Oh, this is her second time seeing a dead body yeah. in her life. Actually, it's third. Oh. One, oh, two, that's third. What, yeah. Well, no, that was her first. Yeah, oh. this that is was her first. second. This is the second. She's, she's kind of having a ride right now. <laughs> that third voice you heard right after my friend Riley is Isaiah Vega, the mortician I told you about. For the first part of our interview, he spends a little time trying to sell me a casket. This one mm -hmm. and that one are basic caskets. All this talk of people in caskets has me a little nervous. There's a scene from Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead that sort of encapsulates this feeling. Tom Stoppard's character Rosencrantz muses on what it's like to be dead in a box. He tells his friend Guildenstern that one always thinks of it like being alive in a box. You keep forgetting to take into account that you are dead. No one knows what death looks like, and that's scary. But caskets mean something. I can't say why they mean anything, but we buy them for our loved ones, and when we do, we are forced to look death right in the eye. I don't know why we would choose to do that, so I asked the mortician himself, Isaiah Vega, if he has any idea what motivates people to buy caskets for their loved ones. I was raised as far as me, personally. Um, if you love someone, why wait till the day that they die to buy them flowers when you get bought them every day? You can pick them out of a garden and give them to them when they're alive and they can appreciate it more. Versus having the guilt of buying it when they pass away and having a show. But at the same time, there's people like me also that on my pre-need, I have a Promethean casket, which is a Batesville casket. The casket he's referring to costs anywhere between $25,000 to $40,000. If you didn't know, Death is an expensive business. The thought of this sort of money-hungry structure around one of the scariest events in a human's life sort of makes me uncomfortable. But Isaiah Vega is not this inhuman businessman. He's not just looking to make a quick buck off the death of others. There can, there's, there's a lot of people in the business that are like vultures and tow trucks. <laughs> that, that's pretty much how they are. And those are the ones that give us the bad rap. So, at this point, I leave the mortician for the day. Well, 
only after the mortician invites himself and the hearse driver to join us for lunch after the interview. And after I arrive home, I have to wonder, are there just businessmen and vultures in tow trucks? I have to get another opinion, so I decide to ask another death professional. I ask my dad. I grew up with a father who openly talked about death. He was an assistant district attorney in the Bronx during the 80s. He was basically a character on Law & Order. And he saw death all over the place and never shied away from talking about it with me. So I asked my father to tell me more about his days as an ADA in the Bronx. He's sitting in the family living room, eating a package of Twizzlers, which he calls nibs, and smoking a cigarette because my mom isn't home. He's got a guitar next to him and he plays. I was a prosecutor in probably the greatest laboratory of crime of its day, which was the Bronx during the Fort Apache days when crime was relatively high. Um, and what did the Fort Apache days look like? Back then, there were more murders in the second smallest county in New York City, the Bronx, than there are in the entire city now. The first case I ever handled was a stabbing case uh, of a of a bum who got stabbed in the groin by a hooker over a dispute over a park bench. Um, and it went up from there. I asked him if these sites desensitized him. He says that it hasn't desensitized him much now, so many years later. But maybe at the time, it did. He describes a typical day on the job. I can remember going into a homicide scene and since I had been interested in movies when I was in college, um, remember the guy who killed his girlfriend and the guy she was sleeping with, and I was, we were doing the filming of the crime scene, and I found it fascinating that their videotapes on top of their TV were all movies like Death Wish 1 and Death Wish 2. So we panned in on, we sort of made an art movie out of the crime scene, but... God. I directed. You directed? Yeah. God. Yeah. It was like it was like Quentin Tarantino before his time, you know. Whoa. Yeah. Fade in on brains on the wall, you know. This fits the narrative we hear all the time. The more murder and destruction you see, the more desensitized to it you become. But recently my father's best friend, Kevin Dooley, passed away due to sudden heart failure. My dad didn't respond like he was desensitized. He was devastated. I ask him if we ever get good at dealing with the death. In a sense, you don't. Um, you know, look, I, I gave a eulogy two weeks ago for one of my best friends who died pretty young, you know. Um, nothing really prepares you to do that. Um, doesn't make the loss any easier. Um, yeah. But it's a fact of life, and as you, as you get older, yeah, um, what you find is more and more of your friends, you know. My dad's method of coping is so different from my mother's. My dad embraces death because he's a pragmatist. It's his job to accept it. My mom doesn't view it that way. She takes things from a much more sentimental, spiritual, and nostalgic lens. When I ask how she's handling my grandmother's upcoming death, she's strangely positive about the entire thing. Well, as you know, my mom's in hospice, but she's had um, Alzheimer's and sort of been fading. It's not 
to me, it's a very different type of death because it's a fading away instead of someone getting sick and, and dying sort of suddenly. My mom un- has an unusual thing of um, having had Alzheimer's now for like 20 years, which is a very long time to have Alzheimer's. And you sometimes realize you have to struggle to remember the person she was before her mind started going. But her body has stayed pretty healthy and until recently. And, you know, I think it really makes me sad. and It makes me have to sit and think about the person she was before the disease started taking her mind. But at the same time, I feel blessed and lucky that I've had her because up until just really recently, you would still see pieces of her. And like yesterday I saw her and I could see pieces of her. She was happier and and more there again. And what did you see in her yesterday? Oh, the questions that she asked and the, the, um, you know, bless your hearts to your dad (laughs) and um, just the different things where they're more her, at least the her of the last 20 years, not the her before. Uh, she was a really outgoing, my mother was an outgoing person, talked to everyone. Um, my mom was um, like the kindest hearted person in the world. She'd just take in and help and do for anybody. So And so that's a part of her that people like you don't remember because when her mind started going, you, you lost a lot of that. She liked to be out. So she was forever looking for a job. Even though she was a stay-at-home mom, she wanted to be out working. And uh, she worked at a lot of different things. She worked at like selling Avon because that was easy. She worked at selling real estate. And the only person ever bought anything from her was my dad. Um, And she worked for a dry cleaning thing that didn't go very well very long. She worked in in a nursing home. And she felt so sorry because they had a guy who was kind of restrained. And she felt so sorry for him. She was on the night shift. And it was to eat and everything. So she decided to... do him from the restraint and he like knocks her across the room and everything so she never did that again if i was looking for a more hopeful narrative then i think i stumbled on it sort of my mom finds peace in the memories of my grandmother without ever explicitly telling me so my mom tells me she copes by remembering the person my grandma used to be we all have different ways of coping Some of us make stupid, stupid jokes about how plastic corpses appear. I'm sorry about that, by the way. And some might try to help a grieving family by selling funeral supplies, making a living through death. Some of us make crude documentaries at crime scenes. And then others of us, like my mom, aren't so scared of the death part. They long for the part after life, the celebration that might occur at the end of the tunnel of life and they find joy in remembering who their loved ones used to be. And me? I haven't figured out how I cope yet. But I guess I'll find out.